We are, uh, we are in week six of eight in Song of Solomon, and uh, it has been an especially sexual and erotic uh, series, and I, I was uh, reminded before I, I preached in Arcadia at the nine that because of Baby Dedication Sunday, we might have more grandmas in the crowd, and so I'm going to try and dial down the sexuality a little bit for the sake of the grandmas, not that you don't know that stuff, but... That just got awkward. Okay, uh, chapter six, verse two. Just gonna pretend that didn't happen. Okay. <clears throat> we wanna backtrack a little bit. If you weren't here last week, just, just, to, just to backtrack, um, Solomon and his bride had a fight. Okay, uh, the first fight, the only fight recorded in the book um, happened after the wedding, maybe many months after the wedding. They fought, uh, Solomon ran away from the fight like a little baby. They eventually reconciled. And, and now we're going to see kind of the aftermath of that reconciliation. So we're only gonna look at three verses. We're gonna skip a bunch and I'll tell you why. Um, you can go back and, and read it later. Chapter six, verse two. After the fight, they've reconciled and she says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So they get married, they consummate the marriage, they have a fight, they reconcile, they reconsummate the marriage, right? All of that language in chapter six, verses two and three, we remember from previous weeks is very sexual language, her garden and all those kinds of things. So they reconsummate, they reconcile emotionally, they reconcile physically, and she makes this statement after the reconciliation, which is very significant. Verse three, she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This language is ownership language. Okay, she says, I am his and he is mine. This echoes the um, covenant made at the wedding day. When a bride and a groom stand before a pastor, they make commitments to one another. They say, I will give myself to you all of me, not just physically, I will give all of myself to you for better, for worse, for sicker, for poorer, for richer, for poorer, for sicker, for healthier, I don't know. Um, uh, Until death do us part, I give myself to you. So she is simply reiterating the covenant made on their wedding day, where she goes, I am his. This is not him saying, this woman is mine, right? This is not oppressive, patriarchal. This is her saying, we're reconciled. I feel confident to say, I'm his, and he's mine, okay? There's a renewal of the relationship. Now, we're gonna pass over two poems that he writes to her um, after their wedding. Turn to chapter seven, verse 10. One of the poems is um, more kind of emotional, not sexual at all. The other one is extra sexual. And so we're going to skip over it to chapter 7, verse 10. After, um, after courtship, after dating, after attraction, after wooing, after wedding, after breakup or, or fight, after reconciliation, after physical renewal of the relationship, she says again in chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's. She says, I am my beloved's. I give myself to him. I'm comfortable stating that he he owns me in that sense, in that he takes responsibility for my life, and I gladly give him that responsibility. It's the second half that's more important. She says, and his desire 
is for me. His desire is for me. This word desire is a very unique word. It's only used three times in the entire Old Testament, okay? This Hebrew word for desire. It's used here in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. It's also used in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. So let's turn there real fast. We're going to bounce around a little bit more than usual today. So Genesis chapter 3, Genesis' first book in your Bible. So just start at the beginning, turn till you see a 3. Okay, Genesis 3 is when the story goes bad, sin enters the world, God is doling out kind of the consequences of this sin, gets to the woman in verse 16, which is where we first see this word for desire. God says, it says, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, okay? So we've got this, her desiring her husband. Now, at first glance, if we didn't have the second half of that sentence, we might think, well, this is a good thing, that a wife should desire her husband. But no, in the Greek, grammatically, what it's, we're in the Hebrew, I'm sorry, what's happening here is she's she's going, she desires to rule her husband, but that's not how it's going to be. That's not God's order for marriage, that the husband would be head of the household, that he would be responsible, that he would lead. And it says that one of the curses is the wife will always want to rule, will always want to control, but that's not how God made it to be. That's the first one, okay? Chapter four, verse seven. Now we've got Cain and Abel. Cain wants to kill his brother Abel. It's murder happening. Verse seven, chapter four. God says, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? Talking about their offerings. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay, so we've got this this word desire here in Song of Solomon 6 after she said, my beloved, or I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Then we've got Genesis 3 where it says the wife will want to rule over her husband, um, but that his desire will, or that her desire will be to rule. And then in Genesis chapter 4 says that Cain, if he chooses wrong, if he follows this path of sin, it says that sin crouches at the door and its desire is to rule over Cain. So we've got this word desire and then there's another word in every one of these passages that goes along with it and that word is rule, rule. Okay, so we've got it clearly in Genesis 3 and 4. We've got that same idea of ownership, ruling in Song of Solomon 6. And so this word, this, this desire, this strong desire is a desire that wants to rule. It's a desire that can rule over us. Okay, so I, I just want you to have that in your head that, that that's kind of the, the semantical idea behind this word desire. Now, I want to look at Solomon. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. I just want want you to kind of have that lodged in your head as we go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon is king of Israel. Um, His father was David, who was king of Israel before him, right? Um, David, the scriptures tell us, was a man after God's own heart. Um, David certainly had weaknesses, had sin in his life, there's no question. Um, But his heart was always inclined towards God. Okay, that's what the scriptures tell us. Solomon was David's son. 
Um, He was the one that David chose to bestow the crown to, the throne over Israel to. Okay, and so we've got uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built in the name of the Lord, for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. I just want to make brief mention of the fact that its description is, first, that Solomon loved God, then that he walked in God's ways. Okay, just to make mention. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. So God appears to Solomon in a dream and says, I'll give you whatever you want. I love you. You're the king over my people. What do you want, Solomon? Solomon says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So God appears to Solomon, king over Israel, and says, Solomon, I love you. You're my guy. What can I give you? I'll give you whatever is the desire of your heart. Solomon very humbly, very wisely says, you have shown me great grace. You have loved my father. Because of that love for my father, you have made me king over Israel. You have given me this position in spite of the fact that I'm young. I don't know what I'm doing. He says, I don't know how to come out or go in. I don't know if he struggled with doors or what the deal was there. But, but he, he says, I, I don't know what I'm doing. You've given me this great grace. What I want from you is wisdom. Just, just give me wisdom. Just give me the ability to discern how to govern your people. Solomon is very uncreative here, right? I mean, he could have anything that he wants, and yet he picks wisdom, right? Is he trying to score points with God? Is it right? We, we, we don't know. What we do know is he very humbly asks for wisdom to govern God's people, and God likes his answer. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been, seen, has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Right? So Solomon asked God for wisdom. God says, that's a great answer. I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you riches, and I'm going to give you power, I'm going to give you a long life, I'm going to extend your throne, and it's going to be a good deal. Right? So Solomon very humbly asks for wisdom. God blesses him over and above that wisdom. And then we get to 14, which is covenant. 
God says, and if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandment as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God enters into covenant with Solomon saying, listen, you love me, that's clear. You're walking in my ways, that's clear. If you will continue to love me, if you will continue to walk in my ways, if you will walk with me, then I will continue to bless you. I will extend your life. I will extend the length of your throne. I will care for you. We will be in relationship, okay? Now, turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. First Kings 9, 1 Kings 9.1 says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Right? So Solomon had asked God, can you consecrate, um, anoint this temple that I have built for you? God shows up, reveals himself to Solomon a second time and says, yes, I've done what you asked. And then reiterates this covenant in verse 4. It says, and as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So God reiterates this covenant saying, if your heart stays inclined towards me, if you continue to walk in my ways, then I will continue to walk with you. I will bless your kingdom. I will keep you as king. I will extend your life. This goes good. Reiterates the covenant. Verse 6, we get the most dangerous word in the Bible. But. But is the most dangerous word in the Bible. It's either God's talking about something really good and then says but and then it goes bad or God has described something really bad and says but and it's about to talk about what he's going to do to change it. But is the most dangerous word in the Bible. It's the best word in the Bible. But, it's the only time you can say that. Verse six. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So here's what we're seeing. This man Solomon, at the beginning of his reign as king, was a godly man, 
loved God, we saw that in chapter three, loved God, and because of that love for God, also followed God, followed his statutes, walked in the ways of the Lord. God comes to Solomon, enters into covenant with him, and says, listen, if you keep loving me, you keep walking with me, I will keep blessing you. Comes to him again, years later, in chapter nine, says, keep walking with me, I've consecrated this temple, I've loved you, I've walked with you, you keep walking with me, I'll keep walking with you, I'll establish your throne, I'll establish your temple. Covenant. Things seem to be going really well. We get to chapter 11, and all of a sudden things are really bad. Something happens in chapter 10, and it doesn't tell us exactly, but some, 10 is really bad because we go from 9, which is good, to 11, which is really bad. Something happened in the middle that we see in chapter 11. So turn there. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. King Solomon loved many foreign women. This, we've got to get this. Over and over and over and over, we've, we've heard about Solomon's heart, his father David's heart before him, that what happens here translates into what happens out here. So the fact that Solomon was walking in the ways of the Lord, the fact that David walked in the ways of the Lord was a product of where David and Solomon's hearts were. We we saw that in in chapter 3, that it started by saying Solomon loved God. Because of that love he had for God, he then served God. Whatever, wherever that heart is inclined, whatever we love the most, we will serve and obey. Whatever we value the most, whatever our heart is most inclined to, we will do what it says to do. So it says that Solomon's heart loved God, therefore he walked in his ways. Therefore he lived out God's vision for his life. Something's changed. Verse 11, it says that Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Now, some very stupid Ignorant people over the years have used passages like that where God says, my people should not marry with these people and very ignorantly have used this as an attack on interracial marriage. This, this has happened throughout our country's history. This has happened throughout Christian history. And what the, what the ignorance is of this is that they read the beginning and go, yeah, see, we're not supposed to marry the Edomites and the Hittites and the Moabites and the Girgashites and all these people. We're not supposed to marry them. So we shouldn't, as, as generally spoken of, we shouldn't as white people marry non-white people. Well, that's absolutely asinine. It's absolutely ignorant because they're just not reading the rest of the sentence. God says the reason that the people of Israel, the people of God, should not marry these other people is not because of the color of their skin. It's not because of their nationality. It's not because of their heritage or culture. It's because they worship other gods. And and the testimony of Scripture since the very beginning has been what you love will, will translate into what you follow. What's in your heart dictates what you do. 
Therefore, if your heart is inclined towards a different God and that God asks of you to do X, Y, and Z, which is different than what the God of the scriptures, the sovereign God of the universe asks us to do, where our heart is inclined, we will then act. So God goes, don't marry those people because you will give your heart to them, you will love them, want to please them, and they love different gods. And different gods require different things from their worshipers. Now, in, in this immediate context, the Moabites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Edomites had actual other gods carved out of wood or stone. We don't do that anymore. We have much more subtle gods like clothing and reputation and money and power and influence and success. But they are no less demanding on our lives. When we worship the God of money, money tells us work hard, work long, sacrifice your family, be um, dishonest when it gets you more of me. Essentially, money as our God tells us pursue me to whatever end it takes to get me. Uh, Ultimately, the same message of the God of the Bible that says nothing should stand between you and me. Nothing should be superior over me. Pursue me with all of who you are. That just means something very different. When we pursue the God of the scriptures, we ought to love our family. We ought to have the proper perspective of the use of money. We ought to preserve our wives, preserve our children. We ought to do these things because that's the vision that God gives us for our lives. When we have a different God, it sets us down a different path. And so God came to his people and said, don't marry those people because they love that God. They love that idol. And that idol is going to take them in this direction. And that's not a healthy direction for you. That's that's not the biblical vision for your life. And so what, what was really clear, what was really clear to all the Israelites that they shouldn't marry outside of their faith, Solomon broke. Over and over and over and over, Solomon broke this rule. And his heart was turned. His heart became inclined towards other gods. We hear that here. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That's amazing. Like, you, you have to be the wisest man in the world to be able to handle 700 wives. That, that's impressive. It says, his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon's heart was turned. 
and what followed were his actions. His heart was turned towards other women. That desire that his wife felt so confident was for her and her alone. At some point, at some point in his life, it got turned. And his desire ruled over him. He, he, he no longer ruled that desire, focused it on this woman, on this wife that he had covenanted with, that that desire, as was promised in Genesis 3, it was promised in Genesis 4, it had a desire to rule him, and he let it. Some people have questioned over the years whether using Solomon as this example of idealized love is, is very wise in light of the rest of his life. And what I think I see here in Song of Solomon and what I see in Proverbs and what I see in Ecclesiastes is a man who loved well at the beginning of his life, allowed his desires to begin to rule over him, and then at the end of his life, in retrospect, regretted every moment of it. Proverbs chapter 5, he says exactly that. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read from Proverbs five fifteen through 23. In Proverbs chapter 5, he says, drink water. He's speaking to his sons, teaching his sons. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Solomon, at, at, at the end of his life, near the end of his life, looks back on these decisions and describes them as death, as entrapment, as folly, as being ensnared. And, and vehemently teaches his sons, don't, don't follow my path. Don't do what I did. Don't let your desire rule over you like I did. This is a man who's been there and looks back and says, it was all wrong. It was all kinds of wrong. There was nothing good about it. It was all death. It was all trap. Please, sons, don't follow in my ways. This is a word for us to hear. As a man who has been there, as a man who has done that, and can say it's not worth it. Statistically speaking, 60% of the men in this room will cheat on their wives. And it's not just that, 40% of you women will as well. And according to the statistics, some sociologists think that that's actually growing in um, people under 30 years old as our culture allows for um, multiple partners before marriage, as there's a sense of entitlement amongst the younger generation that we should not be bound by these commitments we make, but be able to, no matter what, fulfill whatever our greatest desire is for our satisfaction in that moment and not be held back by 
a cold spouse, a mean spouse, an angry spouse, an unfulfilled love life. So this is is only growing. Solomon experienced it where he he had what he always wanted. He, He had this beautiful wife, this loving wife who gave herself to him, was so confident that that his desire was for her and her alone. And his heart was turned. Most of us, when we think about infidelity, think about it in the physical sense, and that's obviously maybe the greatest betrayal that one human can perpetrate against another, but but there is um, emotional infidelity when you give your heart to someone else more than you give them to your spouse, give it to your spouse. When you entrust the, the longings, the secrets of your heart to someone who you are not married to, that is emotional infidelity. There's, there's mental infidelity when we think about, when we fantasize about being with another person, whether that be specific person that we, we know of or it's just an idea of a person that we would want to be with. It's, it's adultery. It's, it's infidelity in its clearest sense. And here we have a man who perpetrated it 700 times, 700 wives. So, um, what do we do? We have a man here in Solomon who, who followed in the footsteps of his father, who followed in the footsteps of his spiritual father in Adam. We talked about this last week. Solomon, who so, was so quick to abdicate his responsibility in this relationship, did not fight for reconciliation with his wife when, when they had an argument. He ran away like a little baby. That, that he just continued that behavior apparently into their marriage following the footsteps of Adam who instead of stepping in to protect his wife, instead of stepping in to protect his family, to cultivate, to lead, to be responsible, stood passively by and did nothing while his wife plunged their family into sin. Now, now does, does, does the wife bear responsibility? Does Eve bear responsibility? No question. Her decisions are her decisions. She can always control her response. But Adam stood by passively doing nothing. And and so we see the pattern over and over and over. So here's the deal. Gentlemen, the time of you passively standing by while your family degenerates into pain and brokenness needs to be over. Too many of you men have been drugged here to church week after week after week against your will. You have been drugged here by your wife and by your kids who hope one day that you will be the man that God has called you to be. Your wife desperately wants you to be the leader that she needs you to be that God has called you to be. She wants you to be that man and yet she has to drag you to church. And it's even worse during football season, right? 
And, and you're, you're fired up today because it's a bye week. The Cardinals aren't playing, right? But it's, it's the worst when, when they have those East Coast games where it's a 10 o'clock start and you're kind of on your phone like, yeah, Jesus. And, and, and still, and you're checking the score and you're here, but you're not here. And you go home and you, ch- you shut it off and you don't lead your family. You don't love your family. You don't lead your wife. You don't lead your kids. You don't protect them. You are passive and you are weak. And it's time for that to end for the sake of your family. Or desire will rule you and you will lose. Scriptures make it clear that we are in the midst of a battle. And you can deny that if you want, but you will simply die. Solomon saw the effect of his actions and called it trap, ensnarement, and death. It's time to fight. It's time to fight like Solomon didn't. It's time to fight like David didn't. It's time to fight like Adam didn't. It's time to fight for your marriage, fight for your family, fight for their future. How do we do that? First, you become a Christian. Some of you men are here today and you are not Christians. You say that you are for the sake of your wife, but you are not in any meaningful way following Jesus. You have not trusted him as your Lord, as your Savior. You are your own Lord, and you don't need a Savior. You will be self-sufficient enough. You will white-knuckle your way through life, and you will pretend that you are spiritual enough to get your wife off your back, but you are in no meaningful way Christian. You cannot be a Christian husband or a Christian father until you are a Christian man. You cannot experience the grace that is in Christ, that grace that empowers you to lead well and to fight for your marriage. You need to be a Christian. You need to pray and trust the Holy Spirit to lead you and empower you. You need to read the scriptures to center your heart and your mind on him and to understand what it means for him to be your Lord. You need to be in community so that you can see examples of godly men around you that you can emulate and that you can have accountability around you to correct you when things go sideways. It starts there. The second thing is to be proactive. We all know where our temptation comes from. Every one of us knows. Husbands, wives, single men, single women, we we all know where those temptations lie. You're thinking of it right now. You're thinking of that, that woman or that man in your office. You're thinking of that, that moment of solitude time that you have with your computer. You are thinking of the areas of temptation that you have. You, you, you know what it is. And yet you time and time again allow yourself to drift into those moments, to allow yourself to be tempted, and that's where you will lose your fight. So n- nobody goes into battle without pr- first putting on armor. If you are going to fight, you have to be aware of those temptations and avoid them. Walk a different path in the office, avoid those people, put your head down, do your work, go home to your wife, close your computer, do what you need to do. Be proactive when it comes to those temptations. And lastly, be proactive when it comes to your wife. 
Solomon in in the passages we skipped over, having already been married, right? He's already wooed his wife. He's already attracted her. He's already won her heart, and yet even in marriage, writes her poems. Gentlemen, write your wife a poem. Doesn't even have to be good. Doesn't even have to rhyme, right? Just write some stuff down about how great she is, okay? Solomon said his wife was like goats and stuff. Like, it doesn't have to be that good, all right? They just, they dig it no matter what, if it comes from your heart, okay? Woo your wife. Love your wife. Tell her how beautiful she is and how much you need to be with her. Um, Pastor Sean at the Arcadia Mission actually found this quote um, from the CEO of a, a company called Ashley Madison, which is a company that facilitates affairs, That's their business, and business is good. The CEO said this, women come to a service like Ashley Madison because they haven't been sent roses or flowers in God knows how long. Valentine's Day gets forgotten. That revalidation comes in a female user to our site within 30 or 40 minutes as a number of guys are knocking at her door and professing their desire to be with her. Gentlemen, If you do not woo your wife, someone else will. If you don't tell your wife how beautiful she is and how important she is to you, somebody else will. And they will steal her heart away from you. you You have abdicated for long enough. You have been passive long enough. You have not led for long enough. It is time to fight It is not too late, but it is time to fight for your marriage, for your family, for your future, for your soul. Solomon did not, and he lost, and he regretted every moment of it. Let us learn from the example of Solomon, a man who let his desires rule over him. Be saved by the gospel. Stand under the Lordship of Christ. Experience his empowering grace. Be proactive with your temptations. Cultivate your wife's heart. You have homework this week, gentlemen. Write your wife a poem. It's got to be at least five sentences. And it doesn't have to be good. But you've got to read it to her. Look her in the eyes. Tell her that you love her. Even if it's just, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm serious. I love you. (laughs) I'll take it, okay? And so will she. Let's pray. Jesus, the pattern is clear and it's consistent. Where our hearts are inclined, our actions follow. What we love, we worship. What we worship, we serve. There will always be failures. There will always be sin. There will always be shortcomings. But Lord, if our hearts are inclined towards you so that we can love you, honor you, and serve you, Our actions will follow. God, I pray for the husbands 
Lord, I pray that they would lead. I pray that they would lead mercifully, graciously, and tenderly, but with great strength and with great conviction. That they would not be oppressive or heavy-handed, that they would not be patriarchal, Lord, that they would be loving and tender, but strong. Just like you love us, Lord. Lord, I pray for the wives that that they would continue to pray for their husbands, that they would continue to love and serve them, even when they are fools, that they would continue to drag them to church until those men can get their act together and lead. Lord, I pray that the wives would respond to the advances of their husbands warmly, tenderly, that they would affirm them, that when they hear those terrible poems that they would love them, God, I just pray for the marriages here and the future marriages. All the single young men and young women who are walking into such dangerous territory. God, I pray that we would love you first and foremost. That our hearts would be inclined towards you. And that you would lead us in your ways. In your name we pray. Amen.